Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I'm your host, Eric Fleming. And uh, today, I guess we're going to talk about stonewalling democracy. And there's two particular individuals. There's a whole bunch of them we can get into, and we probably will. Um, but let me just say something to people, and this is not any kind of official political science definition or whatever. Um, this is just based on my experience, right? So as a legislator, depending on where you are, right? As, as a black legislator in any state, state legislature, I guess, outside of the Virgin Islands or uh, DC, black folks are not in a majority in any state legislature, right? So we're always at a minority. And, and so it's always important for black legislators to know the rules right? and whatever governs. Most of uh, well, some it, there's a couple of legislative parliamentary procedures that go by uh, most famous, I guess, is the Jeffersonian procedures or whatever. But each each legislative body in the United States has rules. And if you know the rules as a minority, you can use the rules to your advantage to primarily stop bad legislation, right? You can use the rules to get stuff passed, true. But mainly knowledge of the rules when you're in a minority is to stop bad legislation, right? Or what we're opposed to. Most of the time when black legislators are fighting something, it's probably bad for black people and other people of color and other people who are marginal, marginalized, excuse me, right? Now, you know, people on the other side will say, well, yeah, it's bad for this, it's bad for the economy, whatever. The only thing bad for the economy is for people to stop working. The only thing bad for the economy is the stock market to crash. The only thing that's bad for the economy is a pandemic hitting, right? Because most stuff that comes through legislatively, people figure out. That's why they have former legislators on their payroll or lawyers to decipher what the law actually says and they work around it, right and i guess you could say that with people of color too although we don't have a collective lawyer group not unless you count the aclu the naacp or la raza uh as as our legal organizations, right? If you're in the LGBTQ community, you've got Lambda Legal, right? And, and others. Uh, 
So we really, our only real chance to stop stuff that's going to hurt black people is in the legislative process. And those legislators that know the rules can hinder or shut things down, right? So one of the things I was known for, other than introducing a lot of bills for them to consider, right? Was being able to stop legislation. And that was either by offering an amendment or having the bill read. Now, one story I tell, and I actually kind of made somewhat national news for it. It was a brief moment, but we had a situation where it was this group called the American Family Association. They're based out of Tupelo and they, they've got a pretty broad reach across the country. But the session before they had given us these beautiful plaques that said in God we trust, right? And so that was a setup. Because uh, it's not unusual for organizations to give legislators gifts. Some have been called into question, like I think one organization might have been the Community Colleges Association gave everybody briefcases or something. Folks thought that was a little bit much. They were nice briefcases too. I used it for a long time. Um, for legislative work. Um, but nonetheless, they gave us these plots. So the next year, they introduced a bill where I had somebody introduce a bill for them to put plaques in every classroom in every school in the state of Mississippi, right? And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's the national model, has been a national model since Eisenhower's administration, right? Uh, it eventually ended up on the, in the state, the new Mississippi state flag, as well as the state seal previously. You know, and, and conservatives like to throw that out there and God we trust and all that stuff to maintain their Christian base, especially the evangelical base. And those of us who are Christian ain't really opposed to it per se, but we always are on that thin line when we put that out there that uh, we're trying to promote one religion over another. And that's always been a battle since this country was founded. Right? But that was not my issue. My issue was that here we are, the poorest state in the nation, doing the best we can to make sure that our children have the same quality education as a, not only in our neighboring states of Louisiana and Arkansas and Alabama and Tennessee, but competing against kids from Illinois and New York and California, even Montana, right? We're trying to provide public education, which means that outside of the local school districts being able to tax, right? Uh, and, and get money 
the state had to supply money to the school districts too. We had this formula called the Mississippi Adequate Education Program that would supplement school districts. That was the whole point of it. Um, so that everybody would be on a level playing field in every in all 82 counties however many school districts they had in the counties. And that was another discussion for another day. Anyway, so they wanted to put these plots. And so the key word in that legislation was shall, right? Because in legislative terms, if you say shall, that means you must do it, right? There's no equivocation. There's no wiggle room. If, piece of legislation says shall, then it's expected to be done, right? It's expected to be followed. But if you put in the word may, then it gives you flexibility. That gives you an option. You can do this, but you don't have to do it, right? And so we, uh, we got into the debate about the bill and I got up and I offered an amendment and my amendment was very simple um, it was to change the word shall to may right and uh, well the process was I was trying to offer the amendment. what happened the bill went ahead and passed and I held it up on a motion. I used the rules. It was called a motion to reconsider. So basically, when you vote on something, a member can turn around and say, I move to make a motion to reconsider the vote. Right. Well, that holds the bill up a day, even if it passes. It holds the bill up another day. And you're allowed the next day or whenever the chair of the committee decides to bring the bill off of it. It puts the bill on the table in, in parliamentary terms. And so to take it off of the table, the chair can come back and, and uh, make that motion. Right? And uh, so you have as a member in Mississippi, you have like 10 minutes to challenge the motion to table, the motion to reconsider, right? to move it out of the way so the bill can go forward. Well, I used my 10 minutes to explain why I wanted to offer the amendment. And it was two words that I kept throwing out there. It was called unfunded mandate. If you've ever heard that phrase before, it means that um, you don't, you, you're, you're asking a government entity or asking people within that jurisdiction to do something and there's no money given to them to make that happen, right? And, and states do it all the time. And sometimes it's called into question depending on how much it's going to cost to do that, right? And so when I got up there, I used, I grabbed the plaque that had been given to me the year before, 
and I had a dollar bill. Of course, the dollar bill has in God we trust. And so I basically said that to put these plaques up here is in, the, in, in every classroom in every school district was an unfunded mandate. And we don't have enough dollars to make that happen. Most school districts don't have enough dollars dedicated to make that happen. We've got school districts that are trying to maintain programs like physical education and arts, sports, and they don't have, or there's a struggle for the money to do those things, let alone to find some money somewhere to put plaques in every classroom in every school in the state of Mississippi. And I said, in order to put this in God we trust up, we have to somehow provide enough of these dollars that say in God we trust, or something to that effect. Right? So needless to say, there was a lot of activity on the floor. The conservatives were really, the Republicans were really, really scrambling, trying to figure out how to address this issue that I was bringing forward, right? Because they actually thought that I was going to be able to turn the tide. And so Needless to say, my motion to uh, reconsider uh, failed, but we were able to get a commitment from, or I was able to get a commitment from the American Family Association that they would pay for all of the plaques to be printed and that local school districts would get donations with the help of the American Family Association to pay for those printed posters to be put in a frame and therefore be able and distributed to every school in the state. Right. So that was an example of using the rules. Another time we had a situation where uh, we had a a child who accused the teacher of touching him inappropriately. And it was a female teacher, a white female teacher. And so she was arrested. And in the process of being arrested at that time, you were strip searched. Well, she felt as though that she was violated by the strip search. So she went to her legislator to ask could that practice be stopped? Uh, and basically what they came up with was something to the effect that anytime a teacher is accused of something, there has to be a probable cause hearing. And at that time, police officers didn't even have that protection, but she wanted teachers to have it. And it just so happened that her legislator was the Speaker of the House. So he had engineered it where there was a bill that came up and uh, he wanted to stick that language in the bill. Well, that there was no code section, right? Because most of the time when you amend a bill, <clears throat> you're dealing with the code section. The only time you can amend it under the rules is if the issue that's brought before the amendment matches that code section. Right. Because anytime you open a you bill, you, you amend or change the law, you open that code section up to be amended. Which is the whole purpose of the 
the bill most of the time. So anyway, um, this particular bill did not have the code section in there for what that teacher and the speaker wanted to do. And I knew that. And I was also a proponent of that same probable cause procedure for police officers. So I was a little offended that they even they didn't consider the police officers legislation, but they were going to make this exception for this teacher who felt she was violated after she was accused of violating a student. Oh, by the way, the student is black. Anyway. So they got up there and so I stood up to raise what we call a point of order and a point of order is a challenge to anything like an amendment or language in a bill that we feel doesn't comport to what the legislation is about. And the speaker would not recognize me for that point. I stood up there and I waited for him to call me and he never did. And so the bill passed, the amendment passed. And then afterwards, speaker asked me for what point did the gentleman from Hines, which is the county I was living in representing at the time, would uh, like to be recognized. And I stated I wanted to be recognized on the point of order that the amendment we just passed was not germane to the bill. Of course, it was too late to make that point of order, and the speaker made that clear. And there were some members actually kind of laughed about that. So, knowing the rules, uh, I, I asked for the bill to be read. So, when you ask for the bill to be read, that means that the clerk of the house literally has to read the language in the bill word by word, right? And uh, she did that. <laughs> she started reading the bill. And so at that point, the members were like, oh, yeah, he, he's pissed. And so, read the bill. Bill went ahead and got passed with that illegal amendment in there. And then the next bill came up, which was even a longer bill, right? Because the key of having bills read is that you want to pick long ones so you have time to negotiate and try to change votes and all that kind of stuff. So, I had the bill read. The next bill so at this point, the speaker realizes I've got to address this. So he calls me up to the speaker's well. And uh, while they're reading the bill, he's talking to me. And I basically told him how I felt. He told me, well, this lady was a constituent and says that your constituents don't give you the right to change the rules. That was inappropriate. And it's an insult to every police officer that's been asking for that same type of protection. And you want to give it to this white woman who actually violated a black kid. And as a black man, I'm offended by that. Right. Now, I don't think 
you know, everything I think kind of worked out legally as far as the teacher and the child. And there may have been some kind of financial settlement involved with it. But at that point, we were dealing with the legislation. And so uh, speaker understood uh, where I was coming from. And after that, uh, he recognized somebody to make a motion to reconsider the bill that had the illegal amendment in it. Uh, anyway, the, the motion to reconsider. So anyway, at that point, they brought the bill out, the motion to reconsider, they came back, they talked about it, and then they took the language out the next day. Right? But I throw that out there because that's the closest thing in Mississippi, and I'm sure there's other states do it different ways, but that's the closest thing in Mississippi we have to a filibuster where we can slow down the process enough to get votes or to change the direction of the way this legislation has gone, right? Usually it's by changing votes, but Sometimes you have to do procedural stuff just to get it not even to be considered, right? Move to recommit the bill to the committee from whence it came, all sorts of stuff. So I, I brought all that personal history out because when I say what I'm going to say, it is to make it clear that what is happening in the United States Senate with the way that the filibuster goes is totally unreasonable. It is totally undemocratic. And um, it's a violation of every parliamentary principle. Because you can make the rules as you go, but the basic principle of debate is to be able to have a debate, first of all, and to have rules about what bills pass. Now, in Mississippi, if you had a revenue bill, you needed three-fifths, right? Anything that's going to change the tax code or generate money for the state, you have to have three-fifths of each house to pass that, right? Uh, anything like an amendment something you need to have like two thirds to amend the constitution or offer an amendment to the constitution that can be voted on by the citizens right but everything else was a simple majority and so in the US Senate what has happened is that you need a supermajority. You need six-tenths, right? Almost two-thirds of the body to approve any legislation outside of what they call this reconciliation procedure, which is basically a fancy way of saying we're going to allow these particular bills to be a simple majority, but everything else has to fall under this 60 vote, 
filibuster uh, uh, goal, right? Which was never the intent of the filibuster. The filibuster was what happened like in the 1960s when legislation came up about civil rights, voting rights, and the Southern senators were like reading, you know, got a hold, got on the floor and started reading phone books and Bibles and whatever else they could, you know, war and peace, whatever could be long to stretch the debate out, right? And even that was kind of iffy because it's like if you're just talking and it's not even germane to what the bill is about, you really should be out of order, but it's kind of a way that the Senate did things. And uh, that was more accepted. But once that filibuster was over, once that break happened, then they were able to vote on the issue and it was a simple majority. Right? As as the Senate became more partisan, then came this magical 60-vote rule, which would shut down everything, basically. If the Democrats had the uh, majority, or if it was a you know a Republican majority, if it's a tie, right, a sixty vote threshold, it's almost unattainable, right? If everybody stays within the party lines, not unless your party has sixty votes, sixty members, which. Maybe in my lifetime that happened, but I don't know. I have to look and do research on that. But it's been a long time since you've had 60 members of one party in the United States Senate. So it's really, really something that that shuts democracy down or shuts the legislative process down. And it should be removed. It shouldn't even exist. So now that I've kind of laid that background, on the other side, we'll talk about these two individuals uh, that need to get with the program. And challenge or vote to end this particular filibuster rule. So we'll we'll catch all that on the other side. All right, so we're back. Now, there are two U.S. senators. One is named Joe Manchin. The other is named Kristen Sinema. Manchin is a former governor of the state of West Virginia. 
So now he is serving as a senator uh, for the state of West Virginia. And uh, he's the senior senator. And um, I, I believe he's the senior. I don't think Caputo, there's a one named Caputo. I don't think she's was there before he got there. Because Caputo basically is in Rockefeller's old seat, and I think it was somebody in between then. And Manchin is in Robert Byrd's seat. Um, I, don't, I think he was the direct replacement for Robert Byrd. So Manchin is typical West Virginia politics, as you the poorest guy out of the names that I mentioned is Robert Byrd. <laughs> I mean, Jay Rockefeller, yeah, Rockefeller, right? If you know anything about American capitalism, that name is synonymous with it, right? Uh, Caputo is into a family, you know, mining. Manchin's family is into mining. The governor of West Virginia currently, uh, he's multi millionaire, probably a billionaire dealing with natural gas and coal mining. So usually in West Virginia, the folks that get elected to office have something to do with the coal mining industry on the ownership end, not the people that actually work in the mines, right? Maybe in some local elections, but as far as statewide, yeah, it's all about the money. Um, Arizona, where Kristen Cinema is from, is kind of a little more wide open than that. I mean, money dictates politics for the most part, but you don't have to be a multi-millionaire or a billionaire to get in. Um, you know, you can... You're a savvy enough politician. If you have some pretty good name recognition, uh, that can offset money. And it just all depends on your appeal, right? Your track record. So Christian Cinema comes from a background where she wasn't even a Democrat. Oh, by the way, both of these folks are Democrats. She wasn't even a Democrat when she initially got started in politics. She was a Green Party person. She actually worked for Ralph Nader. So there's that, right? <laughs> and everybody knows the story about Ralph Nader and his political campaign. Many people blamed him for George W. Bush getting elected because he took X amount of votes, supposedly from Al Gore, that created the nuance which eventually the U.S. Supreme Court decided who the president was going to be in 2000. You had the hanging chads in Florida, the whole nine yards, right? So anyway, Cinema was involved with the Green Party when she decided to run for the state legislature. She ran as a Democrat. Uh, no, let me take that back. I think she got in as an independent. Then she 
switched over, especially when she decided to run for the United States Congress. So she ended up serving a couple of terms in U.S. Congress before she ran for the United States Senate. Uh, and she beat a fellow colleague, uh, Max Sally, to become the first female to be a U.S. Senator from Arizona because it was either going to be McSally or her. And, uh, and so cinema is a relatively new member of the Senate as compared to Manchin. But by virtue of the way the elections went because you had John McCain pass away and John Cotton Flake retiring and all that. Which is cinema is the senior senator for Arizona. So you have two senior senators, right? Which means that they have privilege over the junior senator this day. Uh, and that helps as far as like appointments and uh, to committees and it gives them status to nominate people for federal judgeships and all that kind of stuff. So both of these folks are senior senators and both of these folks have been in Washington for a minute. And so they understand this dynamic about the filibuster. They understand all that stuff that I talked about. Cinema even more so maybe than Manchin as far as because she served in the state legislature before she went to Congress. So all this stuff that I'm explaining to you, they know. And they know how detrimental that is. And because they know, it is absolutely amazing to me that they are complicit in allowing it to continue. Right? So Joe Manchin has a different demographic than Christian cinema. Now, as far as people of color, as far as black women, no, let me be clear. As far as black people are concerned, Neither Manchin nor Cinema really have to worry about a significant black vote. Maybe Cinema more so than Manchin. Manchin does have a historically black college in his state, a couple actually. But West Virginia State, for example, uh, more white students attend West Virginia State now than black students. But it's a historically black college. But the dynamic there is the white kids get their graduate degrees from West Virginia University. They get some kind of certification, whatever, and they say they go to West Virginia. They went to their alumni with West Virginia instead of West Virginia State. Right. So it's the black students that basically when they graduate, they are alumni of West Virginia State. And that's the alumni base. And that's why West Virginia State even though it has majority white students, still has black presidents running the institution. So that dynamic is out there. So most of the black folks are probably in Charleston, West Virginia, 
maybe a few in Huntington. That's about it. And Donald Trump won West Virginia big. West Virginia is the place where I think 80% of the people believe that Barack Obama was a Muslim. It, it, that kind of place. Yeah, when you think about the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, that stereotypical, that's them, right? The Hatfields and the McCoys, that's them, right? So Manchin comes from, even though he never was a part of that class, right, of people, he's been representing them for a long time. He knows how to relate to them. Right. Don't know really how to relate to black folks. Never had to until now. Seriously. But basically we got to US Senate. He really didn't have to deal with a black political machine per se. Right? Or or those dynamics. In Arizona, same thing. Now there's a heavy Latino vote. Right. And there's a significant Native American population. But as far as black folks outside of Phoenix, Tucson, not so much. So Christian cinema doesn't really have to really deal with black people until she goes to Washington. Right. See where we're going? So when an issue comes up that greatly impacts black people, especially their right to vote, which has been a major, major sticking point in American history since, oh, I don't know, the Civil War maybe, or prior to that. They naturally do not have any real empathy for that. It's not natural for them. It has to be created. It has to be stimulated. They have to be educated. They have to be lobbied because they cannot relate. They have no political background to justify them having to have empathy or care about issues that impact black people. Okay. So maybe we're asking a lot. But it has to be asked. And if not for the sake of black people per se for the sake of democracy as a whole because the people that you are helping senators by not fixing the senate to be a a active deliberate legislative body right very 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 right now it's it's basically slow moving train. If it wasn't for exceptions for presidential and judicial appointments, right? Cabinet and judicial appointments, I should say, and because they're both presidential, but um, and budget issues, so the country could actually function. Um, any other legislation just goes to the Senate to die especially when you've got a guy like Mitch McConnell who's in Senate leadership or just in the building who takes great pleasure in killing legislation. 
especially if it's going to help anybody other than himself. Right? I mean, Kentucky was the most efficiently run state. And Mississippi was a close second, but but Kentucky was the most efficiently run state when it came to affordable the Affordable Care Act or what the Republicans or everybody else calls it Obamacare. Right? Even Obama calls it Obamacare. Right? But Mitch McConnell was opposed to it, and he still is. But when you look at states that took the program and made it work. Kentucky was the model. And he's still against it. Because he doesn't need that health insurance, right? It doesn't benefit him. He's got the best health care plan in America. He's a member of the United States Congress. He doesn't care. So any legislation, right, that doesn't impact or, or benefit Mitch McConnell directly, he's against it, which is virtually everything, right? And so Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, although they're not members of that particular party that Mitch McConnell is a member of, they're doing his bidding by allowing him leverage. Because all he has to do is make sure that 10 Republicans don't vote with the Democrats who have 50 votes on most days. Because Manchin and Cinema, not exactly sure bets. Right? But I mean, cinema is, is very interesting, right? Because she is a member of the LGBTQ community. She is bisexual. She's made that very, very known, right? So she's the second U.S. senator that's openly a member of the LGBTQ community. The other one is the senator from uh, Wisconsin, Senator Baldwin. Senator Baldwin, by the way, is all about internet filibuster. And, and when you look at the dynamics of Wisconsin, and let's go with Georgia. The two U.S. senators from Georgia, Mr. Ossoff and Mr. Warnock, Reverend Warnock, they, they're they against the filibuster. And if you look at the dynamics of what's happening in Wisconsin and the dynamics that's happening in Georgia, those are states that are what we consider purple. Those are states that are on the balance. They could go either way. Both states went for Trump in 2016, and they both went for Biden in 2020. Go either way. And they're basically saying that what is right is right. And if it costs, especially Warnock, he's up again in 2022. If if ending the filibuster means I can't serve no more in the United States Senate, but black people <coughs> have protections again as far as voting, I did my job. That's his mindset. Also, if involved in the same way, they, they've got a full term to serve. But their mindset is, as long as I've done what I think is the right thing, I'm good. I can say I served. 
and I voted on this issue. We got a brother that voted for a stimulus package. That's the only thing he voted for, Kwanzaa Hall. He got to serve one month, but he can say that he voted for a stimulus package to help people out during the pandemic. That's all you need. It's just enough time to do some good because the whole purpose of government is to do no harm, right? It's the fundamental tenet, do no harm. America's kind of failed at that, but but nonetheless. And sometimes the filibuster was kind of, the whole purpose of it was, was designed to make sure that the government didn't do any harm. It was supposed to be a tool to really, really stop bad legislation. But of course, when the parties get involved and it got more partisan rather than principled, it's just been a weapon for whichever party is in the minority just to say no. And the Republicans have been good, better at saying no than the Democrats. Republicans can always pull a few Democrats. The Democrats, really, really hard for them to pull any Republicans, although they, they're getting better at it, I think. They pulled quite a few in this last vote dealing with the commission, which, by the way, was killed because of the filibuster. They had, they had 49 Democrats, right? I think 49, may have been less. No, because two senators, including Cinema, took a walk. Saying, well, you know, we had family commitments and blah, blah, because it was right around Memorial Day holiday. So he took a walk. Patty Murray, she probably did have a legitimate family thing because Patty Murray was down for the commission. Cinema? Yeah, not so much. She took a walk. Manchin at least stayed and voted for that. Right? Because he was one of them people threatened and he didn't appreciate that. And he was shocked that the Republicans didn't vote. He could they couldn't get ten they couldn't get sixty votes out of their, you know, whatever number they needed from the Democrats. I think they needed 12 or 13 overall since some Democrats have walked. And they got six, which is better than a lot of people that are cynical thought. Right? But it shouldn't have came down to that. It should have been the majority. They had enough votes. They had a clear majority. That should the commission should be forming right now under normal parliamentary rules. But when you created this monster filibuster rule, because it's like they, th this rule is so crazy that it's like, really, you really can't even debate it with any sincerity because you know that the other party is not going to allow any of their members to vote for. And I say allow because. There's consequences if you go against the party line in D.C. Mitt Romney found it out when he went to speak at the Utah convention and he got booed, the GOP convention, he got booed. But Manchin was shocked that they did that, right? And I'm like, what have you missed? 
since you've been there. And you've served with Mitch McConnell all this time. What have you missed? Wasn't a shock to any of us. I know you used to talking to people like that, but not all of them are down with the slick. You couldn't convince them. And that should have been enough for you to say, all right, well, screw that filibuster thing. Let's get this agenda done. <laughs> but that ain't the real reason, right? The filibuster, the bipartisan arguments. I mean, Christian Cinema shows up in her district with a Republican senator from a neighboring state. I say neighboring. Mexico's kind of in between them. <laughs> Which is even more crazy. John Cornyn, of all people. And if y'all don't know Senator Cornyn, look him up, right? He was he was like a district attorney who acquitted a police officer who committed a heinous crime and Anita Gupta and some other folks went down there and got that decision overturned. That's why he didn't want Anita Gupta to serve in the U.S. Department of Justice Attorney General's office. That guy. Christian Cinema had that man arm in arm in her state explaining why she wants to keep the filibuster. And it was very, 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 very bad explanation. She had said that to a group of black folks. She might have got booed. Right? Sometimes you got to have a point of courage, right? Like when folks in Minneapolis were saying defund the police and the mayor stood up there and said, I'm not defunding the police. Not literally, no. He got booed. He's still the mayor. And that was in the middle. That was like literally like weeks after George Floyd was killed. He took that stand. He said, oh, y'all going too far with that one. Can't defund the police. Can't not have police. Right? He got booed, but he's still the mayor. And he probably stayed a mayor if he wants to. Or move up. Depends on how the political winds in Minnesota turn. But Christian Cinema could comfortably say that to the crowd that was there. One, because she brought this Republican senator alongside with her. So you knew what kind of crowd that was. And you knew who wasn't in the crowd. So let me just call it out for what it is, right? Because I've noticed there are certain liberal commentators that don't go after cinema. There are some that really go after cinema and Manchin. Everybody's piling on Manchin. And Manchin has the most legitimate reason of all. I represent a state that Donald Trump won with 40% of the vote. 40% margin. I mean, just, yeah, it wasn't even close. Right? So there's that. 
but it's the same concept with Manson as it is with cinema as far as the mindset. Cinema Arizona is just as purple as Wisconsin and Georgia, but she and she's a member of a community that's been politically attacked, although they're the wealthiest group outside of Asian American Pacific Islanders that have been marginalized or attacked. Right? But because of their standing in wealth, that's why you can get certain legislation passed quicker than the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or the For the People Act, which would help black people primarily. It'll help everybody. You make it accessible for everyone. Because if you make it accessible for black folks, it's accessible to everybody. And there's the rub, because Christian cinema has never needed a big threshold of black voters to show up for her to win anything. Joe Manchin has never needed a big threshold of black voters to win anything. Now, of the percentage of black people in their respective states, they probably got 80 to 90% of the vote, but it ain't like millions of voters in Georgia or millions of even a million voters in Mississippi or Chicago or New York, or LA, right? Or Houston, where millions of black people cast votes. I don't think there's a million black people in Arizona. I definitely don't think there's a million black people in, in, in West Virginia. So these folks have no natural empathy. They have no urgency. They have no care to end the filibuster to benefit black people. And black people need to understand that. Now, fortunately, Friends like Derek Johnson, NAACP, and other black organizations are going to be talking to them or are talking to them and lobbying them and trying to educate them. But it's just like either you buy the Pillsbury biscuits already in the can or you have to make it from scratch. With cinema and mansion, you got to make it from scratch. And you got to make them understand that it's like, you better gain some empathy toward helping black people, or you are going to be just like other historical figures in the United States that stonewalled democracy. Right? Because regardless of what anybody else says, if you stop black people from voting, America has proven this time and time again. You stop black people from voting, you are not a true democracy. You are not a true democratic republic, even. Right? And it's been proven, despite the Supreme Court's so-called wisdom, that we still need legislation to protect black voters in the United States of America, period. And Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema 
need to understand that. Just like Chief Roberts and the rest of the Supreme Court or the majority of the Supreme Court that voted to gut the civil rights bill or we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Right? The Section 5. So anyway, my appeal to Senators Manchin and Cinema is that if you don't want to go down into history as being two more senators like Russell and, and Eastland and all the rest of them guys that wanted to deny black people the right to vote, then I strongly suggest that you get off of this fantasy of bipartisanship and end the filibuster. Until next time.